Forest. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Welcome to the Temple Mount. Welcome to the Temple Mount. Today on Viewpoint, you and I are going to proverbially, figuratively, ascend the Temple Mount. With the Jewish people over there in Israel... On Wednesday and Thursday of this week, they were celebrating, well, not really celebrating, but commemorating through a fast and a feast, what is called Tish B'Av. It's the ninth of the month of Av, which is a very unique time in Jewish history. It is so unique that it brings their attention every single year. Why? Because on the ninth of Av, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans. And a whole host of other very dramatic and cataclysmic events took place on or at about the ninth of Av. What is it about that particular day? What is it about that particular time? Was it particularly significant to God? And what about the significance of a rebuilt temple? You see, that's the great hope of Israel. That, believe it or not, is perhaps the consummate hope of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, because without the temple, they cannot complete God's mandated requirements for redemption, according to the Torah. They cannot. And so they've been living in a 2,000-year hiatus in which they have been unable to fulfill the biblically mandated requirements for the covering of their sin. It's true. Now, just in the last couple of weeks, an article has come through indicating that the long-sought red heifer that the Torah also mandates be associated with the necessary sacrifices uh, related to the temple has now been found. That's right. The necessary red heifer that the Old Testament requires the Jewish people use as a means for cleansing the ashes of the red heifer now have been found, which means that we may be on the very cusp of a rebuilt temple. Now you say, well, that doesn't matter to me. Uh, I'm not concerned about the temple. I've never been there and uh, have not seen the temple. And besides which, doesn't the Bible say the Lord God does not live in temples made with hands? Well, indeed it does. In fact, that could be first found in the Old Testament. Even the King Solomon that built the first temple in his great prayer said, that the Lord doesn't live in temples made with hands. So why the temple? It was conceived of by David. David was a man after God's own heart, and he had a desire to build the temple because he said, here I live in a house of cedar wood, and God's presence and his Ark of the Covenant are situation situated in a tent. We should build a temple. We should build something worthy 
of our focus on Hashem or God, Jehovah, the Lord of nations, the King of Israel. And so God said, no, David, uh, there's too much blood on your hands. You've been a man of war, but I am going to fulfill your desire through your son, Solomon, and he will build the temple. And that's exactly what happened. And that temple stood for, what, about four or five hundred years? And then it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, when they came roaring through Jerusalem. And then it was rebuilt. In fact, it was King Cyrus, a Persian king, who facilitated the rebuilt rebuilding of the temple and the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and so on. And so that temple stood for another five, six hundred years until it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Since 70 A.D., Israel has been without a temple. And would you like to know, would you be interested to know what the most dynamic call to the heart of the Jewish people today would be? The most dynamic call to the very inner being of the Jewish people today would be the rebuilding of the temple. Now, if that be true, then you could see why the motivations of Israel, the Jewish people, not only in Israel, but around the world, the motivations would be at a very high pitch of expectation. They would do almost anything to see that temple rebuilt. And so today on Viewpoint, we're going to take a look at the breadth and the depth of this issue because it has everything to do with the rest of the world. You can talk about Ukraine all you want. You can talk about Russia. You can talk about Iran. You can talk about uh, China. You can talk about all the nations of the earth. But from God's viewpoint, there's only one that matters. And that's Israel, the apple of his eye. In fact, Jerusalem is said to be the very center of the universe. And the Temple Mount, the center of that. The most precious 37 acres on the planet without price. Priceless acres. The center of all expectation, all power, all spiritual power, all economic power, all political power. It is the confluence, symbolically, of all power on the planet. And that's the place where God chose to place his name there. That's what the Bible says. It's the place where God chose to place his name there. Now, if that be true, then there is greater significance, perhaps, to this matter of the temple, the temple mount, and all that's going on now in history, in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, that not only touches Israel, but touches every single one of us. This is the biggest deal of all. And we're focusing on it here today on Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction here on Viewpoint. Our Viewpoint does determine destiny. And whether or not you have a viewpoint concerning this issue has a sense of determining destiny. If you think it's ridiculous then that also has a sense of participating in the determination of destiny. 
If you think that it's highly significant, then that also has a uh, participatory sense, along with many others, millions of others, maybe billions of others, in directing and determining destiny. All viewpoints do, in some way, determine destiny, decide destiny, direct destiny. And so that's what we're looking at here today on Viewpoint. Before we go further, I want to make available to you a copy of my book, King of the Mountain. Chapter 9 is called The Temple Mount. In fact, there are at least three chapters in the book dealing with the temple. This is a huge, huge deal, whether you realize it or not. And when you read, you're going to have your eyes open. Get a copy of the book on our website, King of the Mountain. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Came from France today. Here it is. The Israelis set for new Jewish temple on Al-Aqsa site. Today, this is the message that came from France. The Israelis set for new Jewish temple on Al-Aqsa site. Realizing their goal would massively inflame tensions around the Al-Aqsa mosque compound in Israeli-annexed East Jerusalem, Chorister Shemuel Kam said Jews have been waiting for two millennia for the revival of the temple. Members of the Orthodox Jewish group claim to be descendants of the biblical tribe of Levi, or Levi, which performed hymns and music at the holy site. The institute known as the Temple Mount, which was founded in 1987, aims to rebuild the temple training choirs and clerics and making objects for use in religious rites. The faithful have their sights set on the large tree-dotted compound in the heart of Jerusalem's old city, known as the Temple Mount to Jews and revered as their revered as their holiest site. The compound has for centuries though housed Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third most sacred place in Islam. And so you can see the tensions that lie ahead in fact, the article from France says it's a political atomic bomb. Not just a troubling spot, but a political atomic bomb. A combination of religion and politics, that's a nuclear reactor. So an explosion there blows up everything, said one writer. The international community has never recognized Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem and considers it occupied Palestinian territory. And the controversy is stirred up by the Palestinians who use it for nationalistic reasons. In other words, they hold on to the claim not so much for the truth of it, but to gain the passions of the Western world who are not friends of Israel. So today we take a look at this matter and uh, 
If you look to chapter 9 of my book, King of the Mountain, called The Temple Mount, the subheading is, He who rules the Temple Mount rules the world. He who rules the Temple Mount rules the world. Do you know that Satan believes that? You say, well, how do you know that? Because in the Tanakh, that's the Old Testament, it says of Satan, I will ascend to the heights of the north. I will be like the most high God. Now, what are the heights of the north? That's referring to the northern escarpment of the Temple Mount. He says, I will ascend to the heights of the north. I will be like the most high God. That's Satan's goal. But he cannot be there by himself in his personage because God has decreed that only humankind has dominion on the planet, has official delegated dominion on the planet, which means the only way Satan has control is through delegated power from man. He cannot gain control by himself. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve committed, shall we say, treason against the kingdom of God and yielded a dominion to Satan, the deceiver, their archenemy, God's archenemy, who envies God and has determined he is going to be like the Most High God. Therefore, from Satan's viewpoint, remember, viewpoint determines destiny, from Satan's viewpoint, he must ascend to the Temple Mount and rule the world from the Temple Mount. But the only way he can do that is through humankind, because he himself cannot sit there. That's where... The Antichrist comes in, friends. He is the counterfeit Christ who, much like Jesus is the incarnation of God, the Father, then the Antichrist becomes, in a sense, the incarnation of of Satan himself. And he, then, will, for a short period of time, gain dominion as a human being on the earth in the place of God, in the place of Hashem, God, in the place of Yeshua, Jesus, and ultimately will walk into a rebuilt temple and declare himself God. It's going to happen. Now, he can't do that unless there is a rebuilt temple, can he? There has to be a temple for him to be able to do that. In addition to that, the prophet Malachi makes clear that the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger their covenant, whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, and he will purify. So the Lord, for him to be able to come to his temple, there has to be a temple. So Satan incarnated, so to speak, in the Antichrist figure, 
who is called the son of perdition, just like Judas was called the son of perdition, who betrayed Jesus the first time. So Antichrist is called the son of perdition, who will betray Christ the second time. And then when Jesus returns, he comes and he deposes Antichrist from the throne. So it's about the throne. So at the end of my book, King of the Mountain, we actually have a chapter dealing with the throne, the mountain and the throne. All of this, what this book does is tie together the biblical history of humankind from the beginning, even before creation, to the story of what uh, Satan and God had going in the temple, uh, excuse me, on the uh, mount of God in the heavens. And that's where Satan declared his rebellion. So, the whole picture is set forth in this book in a way that you cannot miss. It is a $20 book, yours for $15, on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Uh, you can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA. 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or you can write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. King of the Mountain, the eternal epic end-time battle. For he who rules the Temple Mount is deemed to rule the world. All right. Now, the holiest place in the world is how the Temple Institute in Jerusalem describes the Temple Mount. It's the ancient site where Abraham, by faith, offered up his only son, a promise, Isaac. Remember that? It was, the, it was referred to as Mount Moriah. So after 2,000 years, that son of promise, Isaac, who gave birth through Jacob to the nation of Israel, was ultimately replaced for all eternity by the Creator himself, offering up his only begotten son, Yeshua, the Lamb of God, who would offer redemption to all who would receive him. The problem is that the Jewish people, except for maybe 12,000 in Israel, have refused to receive Yeshua as the Messiah. They're still looking for a Messiah, but they're looking for a man. They're not looking for a divine Messiah by their own admission. They think that would be blasphemy. So they reject Jesus. They reject Yeshua as the Savior of the world. They don't reject him as a person who might have been on the earth or as a teacher. They reject him as Messiah, Savior, the representative of God who would deliver them. So the Temple Mount, though, has been called not only the holiest place in the world, but also the most volatile acreage on earth. And you thought it was Iran, or you thought it was wherever, Russia, China, Ukraine, wherever you think the problem areas are. No, friends, the Temple Mount issue is a thousand times more potent than that. So what is it? 
What exactly is it about that 37-acre site known as the Temple Mount that makes it so desirable? And what would cause the power brokers of this world to invest their highest hopes in controlling and governing, in fact, governing the globe from that historic plot of land? There's no mystery about it. The Temple Mount is the most contested religious site in the world. So what we have, I have called the battle for King of the Mountain. The Mount of God, the Temple Mount is referred to in the Old Testament as the Mount of God. Psalm 2 asks a provocative question. Why do the heathen rage, or the nations rage, and the people imagine a vain and foolish thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their bands asunder. In other words, let's rip them apart. But God responds to their attitudes and actions and declarations, And he laughs right there in Psalm 2 and says that God, he, will have the nations in derision. In other words, they're going to go crazy. Literally, they're going to go crazy over this issue of the Temple Mount. Not just Jerusalem, but the Temple Mount. Jerusalem is just the entryway to the Temple Mount. Jesus was crucified on the Temple Mount, or just off the Temple Mount. He was not crucified in Jerusalem as such. The Temple Mount is the place that God chose to put his name there. So... The nations of the earth not only do not take kindly the idea that God chose Israel to be a chosen people, called by his name, to be set apart. They don't like that. They're raging with envy. They don't like that. That's not equity, they say. And so they're going to take it out on little Israel. And that's what they've been doing for all these years. Then Jesus, Yeshua, was the embodiment of Israel. He was the only totally righteous Jew who ever lived. So they brought, the leaders of Israel brought Jesus to judgment before Caesar. They hated Caesar, but they were going to use Caesar to accomplish their nefarious ill will, much like the Biden administration is using the Department of Justice to accomplish its political ill will. History repeats itself. You might not like to hear me put it that way, but that's exactly what's happening. 
So the religious leaders bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, who alone, heading up the representing the Roman authority in Palestine, Israel, the only one who can authenticate or authorize a death penalty. And so the Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which is a mandated death penalty under the Torah. How did Pontius Pilate respond? Did you know that Pontius Pilate did not believe them? In fact, he said he knew that it was but for envy that they brought him, not because of the charge of blasphemy, because they didn't like that he was God's chosen one. Are you listening yet? We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. Today we have gone to the Temple Mount. We are taking a look at not only the history of the Temple Mount, but the future of the Temple Mount. And yes, indeed, we can talk about the future of the Temple Mount with some degree of accuracy and confidence. Not with pride, but based upon what God has said. We don't want to go beyond what God has said But we can go as far as what God has said. When the Bible tells us that Satan himself, the deceiver, has decreed that he will ascend to the heights of the north to be like the Most High God, we know that he was declaring that he was going to rule and reign over the whole planet from the Temple Mount. Now, you remember that during Jesus' testing, after he was baptized and uh, baptized in water and with the Holy Spirit, he was taken away into a high mountain uh, in the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And in one occasion, Satan came to him to test him, the devil, Satan, and said, look, in fact, he took him up to a high pinnacle I think it was even on the temple. He took him up to a high pinnacle and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he said, all of this I will give you if you will just bow down to me. If you will just bow down. Jesus said, 
It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Him only shalt thou serve. How is it that Satan was able to make that promise to Jesus? Because he had been given that kind of authority by Adam and Eve, who had forfeited their authority through God that God had given to them, had forfeited it to Satan in the garden. Jesus knew that during his ministry, what he was battling was the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. So he was willing and able to cast out devils, to heal, and so on, and then to decree, to declare the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that would deliver people from the power of Satan. You know what the problem is? Most Christians are willing to bow down to him. In some way or the other, they're willing to bow down because of his promises, not God's promises, Satan's promises. If you'll just capitulate and compromise on this thing and that thing, and you're just going to have a great time, you're going to be happy, you're going to have three chickens in every pot, four cars in every garage, you're going to be prosperous, you're going to do this, that, or the other, you're going to be highly respected, and so on. All these promises. And so, people in their flesh bow down and say, Ah, so, Mr. Satan. Jesus did not do that. Jesus was not willing to take the easy way out. He knew that there was a long-term deliverance. And he was there to fulfill it. So, if we go back now to Psalm 2, where the nations are raging and the people are imagining a vain and foolish thing against the Lord and against his anointed Israel, God says, I'm going to have them in derision. He says, you can declare that you're going to rule and reign from my holy hill all you want. Yeah, you're going to have your opportunity. But ultimately, not. Ultimately, your opportunity is going to be very, very short-lived. And then the consequences of eternity are going to come upon you. So how did Jesus say that in Psalm 2? He says, well, actually it was the Father who said this of Jesus. He said, yet I have set my king... On my holy hill. No matter what the nations of the earth decide, no matter what Russia or China or the Great Reset or the World Economic Forum or the globalists of the Western world or Iran or no matter what any of these grand players have to say about it, it's all going to come to naught for them. Because God says, I've already planted my king on my holy hill. What I have decreed is as good as done. No matter what you guys say you're going to do. You can fuss and you can fret and you can uh, start World War III. You can do all of these things, but it's not going to work. I'm going to have you in derision. 
because I've set already declared that my king is going to reign on my holy hill. Now, who is that king? Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah. Then God concludes his short prophetic message in Psalm 2 with these words. And I'm going to put, uh, paraphrase it in, in the vernacular for us. He says, look, you guys, and he's talking to the leaders of the world. You better get serious and humble yourselves and kiss the sun. In other words, kiss Jesus or embrace Jesus as the ruler of the world or you're done for. That's what he says. Read it. Psalm 2 is very powerful. It's talking about God's holy hill, talking about the Temple Mount, the battle for king of the mountain. That's why I wrote the book, The Battle for King of the Mountain, the eternal epic end time battle. And uh, the book is a $20 book. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or you can write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check, again, at $5 for postage and handling. So, there is, with the Jewish people this last week, from Wednesday through Thursday, having commemorated Tish B'Av, the ninth of the Av of the month of Av, as the most horrific period of time in Jewish history, over and over again. There is also a sense, as one rabbi declared in Israel National News this week, he says, there is hope that that fast will become a feast. In other words, there will be a temple, a third temple. There will be. By the way, let me just run through a few things that have happened to Israel and the Jewish people on Tish B'Hav or right there associated with it very closely. Over time, it's not only the tragedy of the destruction of the temple, but the first crusade officially commenced on August 15th, 1096, killing 10,000 Jews in its first month. The Jews were expelled from England on July 18th, 1290. Notice this is all between July and August. The Jews were expelled from France on July 22nd, 1306. The Jews were expelled from Spain on July 31st, 1492. Germany entered World War I on August 1st to 2nd, 1914. On August 2nd, 1941, Commander uh, Heinrich Himmler formally received approval from the Nazi Party for the final solution. On July 23rd, 1942, began the mass deportation of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto en route to Treblinka. And then there was the bombing of the Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires that killed 85 and injured 300 on July 18, 1994. And finally, in 2005, the Israeli disengagement from Gaza. So all of these were in that period, July, August, 
And uh, you can imagine that Jewish people are saying, what's going on? Why? Why has all this happened to us? Why has this befallen us? Did God cause all this to happen? Did we cause all this to happen? Who caused this to happen? So, the rabbi says, we all raise the same problem. Not only what happened, but how could it have happened? If Hashem, that is, Jehovah God, was the cause of the destruction, how can we call him a good God? If it was an external enemy, why were we the victims? If our own sins caused the pain, can't our merits save us? The pain went to the heart, not just the mind. It was cardiac, not conceptual. We're angry with God, with the enemy, with ourselves. We're angry at the loss of the temple, at two millennia of tragedy. We're angry. Now here, to me, this was the most important thing that this rabbi said. If our sins caused this, can't our merits save us? You know what the word merit means? Works. Can't our works save us? Do you know that that's all that the Jewish people have to go on today? Do you know why that is? Because they can't be cleansed of their sin. There's no temple. They can't make their sacrifices. There's no temple. The sacrifices for atonement could only be made at the temple. And there is no temple. So, this question comes from Israeli National News. Will there be animal sacrifices in the third temple? The answer is, I can assure you, my friends... Yes. Now, we'll talk about some of the problems with that, but the very same problem that this presents is also being presented throughout Europe regarding certain kinds of uh, Jewish traditional practices with regard to the killing of animals. It's already an issue. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today we're talking about something that you're not going to hear on the regular news out there because they don't consider it important. They don't consider much that God has to say important at all. 
these days. Man has substituted his own wisdom or lack thereof uh, in the place of God's wisdom and focus. But here on this program, we try to keep the main thing the main thing. We try to keep God's viewpoint as the main thing, not man's viewpoint, not the conservative's viewpoint, not the Republican or Democrat Party's viewpoint, uh, not your favorite politician's viewpoint or your favorite pastor's viewpoint. We try to keep the, the biblical kingdom viewpoint in position. And it's not just about evangelism. I hope you heard that. The kingdom of God is not just about evangelism. It's about living righteously before God. It's not just about making a confession of faith. It's about living righteously. Now, the Jewish people were commanded to live righteously, but they didn't. Therefore, God provided a day of atonement. He provided an opportunity through the sacrifices that were mandated to be made by the priests at the temple in order to provide atonement for their sins once a year. But the temple hasn't existed for 2,000 years. So they have no opportunity for atonement. So what happened? Well, as a result, a couple of rabbis got together and they conceived a a, uh, solution. Well, we have something better, they said. We have good works. That's merit, friends. We have good works. We can just do good works to merit our redemption, to merit our salvation, to merit our atonement. We don't need those sacrifices anymore. So, having rejected the sacrifice of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God who would take the away the sin of the earth, they have no opportunity for salvation, none. They don't even have a view of salvation the way we do. It's all about planet Earth for the most part. It's pretty amazing, and it's... It's pitiful in in a sense. There's no real hope. The rebuilding of the temple is the hope of Israel. Really? A building? Well, yes, because that's virtually the upon which the whole heart of Israel is focused. Without that, we have no redemption. We have no no atonement. Our sin is ever before us. And we can hustle around and get on the treadmill of good works and try to achieve enough merit to be saved, and it doesn't work. Because the hurrier I go, the behinder I get. So when the Jerusalem Post contained the headline from July 13th to 19th, 2007, This headline, The World Needs the Temple, it really caught my attention. Does the world need the temple? Well, apparently the Jewish people desperately need the temple. In fact, they'll do just about anything to get a rebuilt temple. 
They may even enter into a covenant with a counterfeit Christ figure that they're going to put their trust in because they rejected Messiah, they rejected uh, Yeshua, and they said, we have no king but Caesar, so Caesar they will ensconce to rebuild their temple and to put their trust in him until such time as he decides to walk into the temple as Satan incarnate and declare himself God. That's what's going to happen. But until that time, there will be a rebuilt temple. And, as I indicated earlier, in the last couple of weeks, articles have been coming out concerning the red heifer that is required for the Jewish people to even be able to make their sacrifices there. And that red heifer has been secured. And the Jewish people are very excited about it. Very excited about it. So, where does that leave us? Well, this is all very important for the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. As you can probably see, The rebuilding of the temple is, shall we say, almost the height, the ultimate focus of end-time prophecy as a surrogate or a stand in the place of Christ himself. Christ himself is the true temple. We read about that in the book of Revelation. Because in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no temple there. The Lord God will be the light of it. Jesus was the light of the world when he is here. He left. He said, now you are the light of the world. We're not doing a very good job of that, by the way. And then he's coming back. And in the rebuilt temple, whatever that is, not the one we're talking about that the Jews are going to rebuild, aided by Gentiles, but the, perhaps the Ezekiel temple, the end, the millennial temple that is described so amazingly in the book of Revelation in the last several chapters. But until that time, this third temple is critically important. And because the Jews... The physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have almost universally and religiously rejected Yeshua as Messiah. They have no real hope other than to rebuild a temple. That's their consummate hope. And they've been making every effort toward that end, notwithstanding all the seeming impossibilities of such a thing, all the threatenings of World War III and all of that. They've been in the process of preparing everything for the rebuilt temple. All of the worship tools and elements, reconstructing them, just as they were described in the Torah, the robes for the priests, Everything has been prepared, including the cornerstone. 
even the altar, the sacrificial altar has been prepared. All they need is the opportunity open to them to get the work done. When is that going to happen? Well, I cannot tell you exactly when it's going to happen. The Bible doesn't tell us, and I'm not going to purport to tell you exactly when it's going to happen. Because that would be going beyond what God has said, and that's where so many uh, parachurch leaders and pastors and authors and so on get themselves in trouble. But what we can say is that it is going to happen. And we can look at the times and how intensely things are building toward the necessity for that temple, the preparation for that temple, and the radical changes that are taking place geopolitically on this planet that are in aligning themselves with the rest of the prophecies of these end times. Now, as for you and for me, why would that be important? Do you know that many Christians are putting most of their big hope and and uh, aspirations and so on on their temples. That's why so many pastors are building megachurches. They're infatuated with the temples. Jesus tried to get the mind and the heart of his disciples off the temple. They were walking shortly before his crucifixion. They were walking by the temple mount there, and the disciples were pointing out to these amazing buildings up there. And Jesus said, you know what, guys? The time is coming when not one stone is going to be upon another up there. They're all going to be cast out, cast down. And that's exactly what happened when Rome came through. That's exactly what happened. And quite frankly, my friend, I want to be a little careful when I say this, but if we put all our marbles in our temples these days and miss the Lord of the temple, we're in danger of committing the same idolatry that Israel did and see all our famous temples mega churches and so on meet their demise i'm not calling for that to happen but i'm saying friends we are in a very similar kind of spiritual state that israel was in when jesus was on the scene and the world is in the same spiritual state as it was then, now. Except on steroids. So if Jesus would come the first time in the midst of a wicked Roman Empire, the rule of the Caesars, and the rebellion of the Jewish leaders and people against the very God they claim to serve, 
with the idolatrous worship of their temple. What would he do today? What would he do today? What would God's mind and heart be today? Look, you and I as Gentile believers, if you're a Gentile, if you, uh, or even a Jewish believer in Yeshua, we are not required to burn the ashes of a red heifer in order to bring cleansing to our hands and our hearts. What God desires of us is the sacrifice of a contrite heart, a truly contrite heart, not one that goes through the religious motions but one that truly desires to serve God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to walk worthy of the Lord in the preparation for his coming. And that really is what I think the Apostle John had in mind when he said there, what was it in First John, he says, look, whoever has this hope, in him of the second coming of Jesus will purify himself even as Christ is pure. That's what he'll do. So, the rhetorical question then becomes, what will you do? What will I do? What will we do? In a sense, there's no we-ness to it. It's an I-ness because... You can't control me, and I can't control you. Even God doesn't seem to be able to control us, does he? (laughs) We have to submit to his spirit. Look, it's all about being ready, isn't it? Thanks for joining us here on Viewpoint today. I hope you'll get a copy of the book, King of the Mountain, the Eternal Epic End Time Battle, $15 on our website, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA, write to us, and become a partner, friends. Don't forget that it is critically important to get the message out everywhere. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.